All right, uh, we are in our Acts series, which is really fun. Um, Acts is just, it's just a great book. You know, there's so much going on, and it's really fun. One of the things for me is just watching God break into people's days and into their lives. And God did that with me this week. Um, even with this, this sermon, we've given you all a kind of a reading schedule and, say, and just saying, look, read along as we preach along, and we're going to all try and hold to that. But this week, as I try to prep for Acts 6, uh, through Acts 8-3, which is the story of Stephen, I could not get out of Acts 2 through Acts 5. So um, I'm going to mix it up a little bit, kind of keep that Acts ethos going um, after I pray. So let's do that. Father God, we, we confess together um, that so often we get it wrong. And uh, by that, it's really what we sung just a moment ago, that we do find ourselves guilty of focusing on people, um, of trusting in either the sweetest frame and lifting people above where they belong, or uh, God, judgment can enter in and, and we can really um, look down on people and, and despise folks made in your image. We do the same thing when it comes to the events of this world. Um, far too often as human beings living down here, we assign far too much meaning to headlines and rumors and uh, just the things that can happen to us. And today, so what we want to do is we want to focus our hearts on you. We want to place ourselves underneath your word and say, God, why don't you speak to us about life and about mission, about who we are, about why we were created, uh, uh, just about what you're up to, Father. We want so much to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, and I know right now, Lord, we are dual citizens, but Father, so just turn our attention, our hope, our trust, our affection, our expectation to you today, in Jesus' name, amen. All righty, well, how's everybody doing today? Good, you look good, so, you know, you're not, uh, that's, that's good to know. Um, this morning, here's what we're going to do, we are going to pause, all right, and we are going to take a look at a side story that's been developing we, we've been hitting the highlights of Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, um, uh, and 5 a little bit. But there's another story that's been developing right under our noses the whole time, okay? So let me catch us up, and then let's look at this other thing that's been happening. Um, in Acts chapter 2, as you'll remember, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people, right? Um, the church is launched, and 3,000 people come to Christ on the spot. In, in Acts chapter 3, as we talked about last week, out of nowhere, a lame beggar is healed. Okay, this man's been lame his whole life, crippled, begging. Everybody knows who he is. He is miraculously healed. Everybody finds out about it. And then 2,000 people come and join the church. So hopefully we can all agree that God is moving in this new church. God is moving through this new church uh, God's, God and his people are on the move. Now, that prompts God's enemy, Satan, to launch a series of counterattacks, okay? Uh, Satan's kind of up to his old tricks. He's got to do something to try and stop what God is doing. And what happens in the book of Acts is it develops into a spiritual heavyweight boxing match between God and Satan, all right? Now, it, it began last week again, after the miracle healing when Peter and John are suddenly, after this great work of God, they're thrown in jail. They're 
put on trial, and they are threatened that they will be prosecuted if they dare to continue to preach in Jesus' name. So what, what is Satan doing? Through the Pharisees, he's trying to scare these guys, right? Uh, he, he's trying to threaten them with intimidation. Keep it up. Keep it up, and you're going to get in trouble. And so what happens, though, is that God then moves upon Peter and John, and they are given divine boldness for Christ in that moment. I mean, imagine, you're, in, you're on trial, it's just you two, here's this austere group dressed up to the nines, looking down on you, threatening you. They're given divine just boldness and incredible wisdom. And it's to such extent that these religious leaders, they are forced to let Peter and John go. Well, attack number two comes in Acts chapter 5, um, verse 10, when a married couple uh, commits the first recorded act of sin in this new church. Now, it grows out of Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45, and then Acts 4, 32 and 36, where we read a little bit about this new church, that they have been hit with divine generosity. Jesus has set them free you know, their lives are new, they're free from sin, they're caught up in this great work, and they are just a, a radically generous people. So much that there are no needy persons in this church. Now, that's radical generosity. Nobody in this church is going, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills this week. I, I don't know how me and the kids are going to eat. I, I don't know how we're possibly going to get by because there's such a generosity. In fact, we, we read in both passages that People in this church are even selling houses and land to make sure they take care of one another. It's just a beautiful thing. Well, it just so happens that a married couple in the church named Ananias and Sapphira, they see this, right? They see this, and they also see a golden opportunity to make a name for themselves, okay? Pardon the pun, but they are going to cash in on the generosity, and so they figure they will turn this to their advantage. They'll make a name for themselves in the church. And their plan is simply to outdo everybody else. And so they talk amongst themselves and they say, uh, hey, you know that vacant lot we have? Well, let's sell that thing. And then let's go into church and lay the money down at the apostles' feet. And what we're going to claim is that we have given every penny that we have. This is everything we've made off the sale. And people are going to admire us. Now, you and I know we're going to keep a cut for ourselves. You know, we're not going to be ridiculous here. We're going to kind of look after number one still. And what will happen is that we will be spiritual rock stars in the church. Every time we come in, people are going to go, hey, there goes Ananias and Sapphira. Boy, look at the godliness of those two. So, and, and by the way, just to be clear, okay, just to be clear, this is their land. They can do anything they want with it, right? They can keep it. They can sell it. If they sell it, they can keep the money for themselves. They can give part of it, or they can give all of it. The problem here is that they are blatantly blatantly seeking to manipulate and to deceive God's people. So what's happening is, is through them, Satan is trying to sow some seeds of corruption into the fertile soil of this new work, much like he did in the Garden of Eden where he tried to sow some deception in, into the soil of the Garden of Eden in a sense. But the problem is, 
God isn't having it, all right? So God snuffs out both the attempt and he snuffs out the attempters, all right? Ananias and Sapphira are gone. So God has has, has countered Satan's move, and that is followed, as we read along in the passage, that is followed by the Holy Spirit moving again in great power through the apostles and the first church, and tons of people are healed. And a whole bunch of other people are set free from demons. So God has moved powerfully. And by the way, that results in even more people getting saved and joining the church. So pretty big move on God's part. Well, Satan strikes again. Satan strikes once again through the Sadducees who toss not just Peter and John, they toss all the apostles in jail this time in uh, Acts 5, 17 through 42. And by the way, Luke adds something here that I think we all pretty much knew the last time that Peter and John got thrown in jail, that there's a motivation in the Sadducees' heart. Uh, He says in verse 17 that the Sadducees are doing this because (laughs) they are intensely jealous of the apostles in this new church. In other words, what they're seeing is, man, lives are changing in this new church. People are going over to that side. Look at the fruit of this, and look at what we're doing. Look at at the results of that. You know, compare the two. So they're jealous. They toss them in jail. It looks like we got big trouble until God then launches a divine rescue mission. He sends an angel to jailbreak the apostles in the middle of the night. And so the angel opens the the, the prison door. The apostles walk out. and, And a hilarious scene then ensues the next morning as all the apostles just come strolling in, into the temple and they begin to preach about Jesus. So again, this back and forth is very real between Satan and God. Well, um, it leads to this hilarious scene. So God wins here and Satan, though, then counters as the apostles are immediately re-released, uh, re, re-arrested uh, And then they're put on trial once again. So here they are within the matter of a span of days. It's not just two, it's all of them. And here they are in court before the Sanhedrin, this religious council, which has got some power here. And and the the chief priest opens up reminding them of their court order not to preach. You are here because you have violated our order. And he also pins on them. He says, we also want you to stop not only preaching about Christ, but stop blaming us for the crucifixion. Quit pinning the death of Jesus on us. Well, Peter answers back, reminding them that he and the apostles, they take their marching orders from God and not from them. And then, once again, Peter goes on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder, and I'm going to go into this next week, what is the gospel? We're going to talk about that. We've had it over and over again in Acts 2, Acts 3. Uh, It continues right here. And, And Peter begins this by reminding them of the simple fact that they did crucify Jesus. Yes, it was God's plan. You know, yes, others were involved But they're the ones who engineered this. The the death of Jesus is on them, but if they would simply repent, if if they would simply turn from their sin and turn to God through Jesus Christ, they would be forgiven. 
The, the, the Sadducees wouldn't have to be sad anymore, right? They wouldn't have to be that way. They could be forgiven. They could be new. They could be made into children of God. And, and, and so here they are after this, and the, the Sadducees are at a moment of truth. This is a real crossroads for them. They can choose life, or they can choose death. And unfortunately, as the, as the story goes, they choose death. They actually choose death twice in this passage. First of all, they choose death for themselves. We are not going to receive Jesus. We are not going to accept him. We are not going to turn and join this, this new thing. But they also choose death in that they choose in this moment to kill the apostles. So they're, they're really doubling down on death here. Everything is set to happen. They're about to pull the trigger. And suddenly, one of them, one of the Sadducees, comes to a realization, and one of these priests makes a chilling statement. And the statement is, wait a minute, guys, hold on just a second. I know we've cast our ballots. I know we've decided for execution for these guys. But if by some chance we are wrong in this, we're going to find ourselves fighting God. And so once again, the Sadducees are forced to release the apostles. Now, this time they release them after they, they flog them. Flogging is pretty painful. If you've ever read about what that's like in the ancient Near Eastern world, it is a braided cord. It is painful. The, the apostles get whipped. And you would think at this point, okay, that, that might do it, right? That might be enough. I mean, they've been warned a couple of times. They've been arrested a couple of times. They've spent the night in jail a couple of times. They've been on trial a couple of times. Now they've been whipped. I mean, that might be enough to make them back off or change strategy or, you know, go underground or something. But the apostles leave rejoicing, rejoicing that they have been counted worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus. And so Acts 2 through 5, I just want you to see the action here and understand it. It is a serious back and forth between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the thing is, this back and forth, this spiritual war, it doesn't end in Acts chapter 5. Uh, just so you know, and you'll see it as we preach through, it continues on through the rest of Acts. I should clarify, it actually continues throughout the rest of the New Testament. It continues to this very day. And so what I want us to do today is to get our minds right. Because you and I are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You and I are children of God. You and I are the ones that carry on the mission and the ministry of Jesus today. So it helps very much for us to get clear, for us to understand a few just, just burning truths that really make a difference as we seek to live for Jesus in this world. Okay? So let me start off with truth number one. First and foremost, if you are a child of God, you have nothing to fear when it comes to the spiritual battle. Um, we've pointed this out before, but God says, do not fear. How many times in Scripture? 365 times. That is one, do not be afraid for every day of the year. Whether it's do not fear, uh, don't, uh, you know, uh, 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 don't be afraid, Stop being scared. God says it again and again and again himself, through angels, through prophets, through preachers. We're supposed to know that we are not to live lives of fear on this earth as children of God, even in the presence 
of spiritual darkness and, and, and an enemy of God on the move. But the question is, how can we possibly not be afraid when there is this cosmic spiritual battle going on? It started all the way back in the very beginning. It, it continues today. How are we not going to be afraid with this raging all around us? Well, first of all, God promises all the way through Scripture that he will be with us. Again and again and again, God says, I am here. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, lo, I am with you. Even when we're low, he is with us. God is with us. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It is in the Gospels. God assures us that he is right here, right now, that as Christians, there is never a time when we are alone. And I know sometimes in life it might feel that way. We're never alone as children of God. That's how great our God is. Now, not only does God promise that he is with us, God promises to protect us as Christians, as his children. This is all over the Bible, too. I'll just give you, I'll give you three, okay? Um, Psalm 32, 7, David says this. Now, David in Scripture is a man who went through it, right? I mean, he goes through the ringer. Real enemies in his life. I would suggest that David's path is probably a lot harder than our path today. Well, David looks back on his life, everything he's been through, and he says this in Psalm 32, 7. God, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. That really means something coming from a guy like David who's faced what he's faced. God says this in the Psalms about, about David and about us. Psalm 91, 14, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue and I will protect, for he acknowledges my name. You know, that's what we do in, in worship every week. As we sing these songs, as we pray these prayers, as we recite scripture together, we're acknowledging the name of God together as a people. Well, I tell you, that has some currency in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus prays this over us. In his famous prayer in John 17, 15, he says, my prayer, O Father, is that you protect them from the evil one. That's God's promise over our life. And by the way, just in terms of, of ultimate things, even if we were to die as martyrs for the cause of Christ, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So get that. You go from God's presence here to God's presence eternally, spiritually. I mean, you go from glory to glory as a, as a child of God. Now, the key for us in this spiritual battle, okay, because you've already seen it with the apostles, what is Satan trying, what is he throwing at these guys? Fear, right? The key to spiritual battle for us then is to remain in Christ. That's, that's why there's such an emphasis on drawing near to the Lord and being in his love. Jesus invites us into that, doesn't he? John 15 uh, he says, abide in me, remain in my love, I will abide in you. Uh, when we draw near to God, we feel, we experience, we're assured of the love of God. And the love of God for you and I walking around on this earth, it is a powerful thing. 1 John 4.18 says this about the love of God. It says, there is no fear in love. Why? 
Because God's perfect love casts out fear. I'll tell you, so many times in my life, I've been, you know, I've been shaken or, oh, it seems like this is going to fall down or the earth's going to give way or my life's going to fall apart. I have never failed to stop and to pray and to get still and to remember who God is and to enter into worship and have those fears dissipate. This is a spiritual law. The love of God does this in our lives and drives out fear. We can also know this about spiritual battles. For you and I as Christians, every, and this, this is incredible, okay? It took my heart a long time. I knew it up here, but it took it a long time to, to take that 18-inch journey for me. Every spiritual battle for a child of God is intended to have an upside. Every spiritual battle results in, 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 in a positive for you and I. I think we see this most clearly in the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? A lot of Genesis references today. Again, uh, chapters 37 through 50. Joseph has a long story in Scripture. Well, uh, remembering about Joseph, he starts off as a pretty immature kid, but he's a young man who has a love for God. There's no question he loves God, and look what happens in his life. Joseph, jealousy again on the part of his brothers, his brothers throw him in a pit. They sell, him as, they sell him into slavery. They go back to his father, and they tell him that Joseph's been killed by a wild animal. Joseph then uh, he gets sold into Potiphar's house, right, serving faithfully there. Well, then Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape. Joseph is thrown in jail. He is left in jail for a long time. He is left in jail to rot. He even has a couple of highlights of ministry in prison that ought to get him set free. He stays there. This is a long, hard road for a young man. And yet what we see the whole time, all of this he's going through, he is being developed. He is being strengthened. He has been shaped. He's being shaped into a vessel that God can use. And then Joseph himself says this at the end of Genesis 50. Most of us, oh man, if this was us at the end of Genesis, you know, a, a lot of people say, oh my life, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. That would be the whole story of our life. Joseph looks back. In Genesis 50, 20, and, and he says, what the enemy meant for evil and harm, God meant for good in my life. Or God turned it into good as I followed him, as I walked with him. And Joseph even tells us what the good is. It resulted in the saving of many people's lives. I think sometimes when we go through things in our lives, just realizing that is an incredible, just it, it, an encouragement to us that, you know, like, like when we, we lost twins, Jane and I did very early in our marriage. It was painful. It was horrible. I mean, we went through mourning and grief. But one thing we knew was, Lord, you're going to use this in the lives of other people in the days ahead. I mean, we're going to be able to encourage young couples and love people in grief in a way that we never could have because we hadn't been through it before. And so this is what Joseph is saying. God turned it into good. God is using it. A nation is blessed. Because, because God is, is the victor in all of this. And so what that means, okay, for us is that when all hell is breaking loose in our lives, or maybe it just feels like it is, folks, we can rest assured that God is sovereign. God is working, and he is doing an awesome work of salvation in our lives. He, he's restoring. He's redeeming. And by the way, that's what Paul is getting at, and some of you, your favorite life verse is this one, where Paul says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
God's at work. Be encouraged no matter what you're going through. And so that's what we see through the entire book of Acts, that even though this battle is raging between God and Satan, and it's serious, and it's scary, and it's, it's intensifying, all the persecution, okay, all the opposition that Satan is throwing at the people of God, it's having the opposite effect than Satan intended. Think about this, okay? Um, Satan's attacks don't stop the church. They act, as they hold on to God, they actually serve to strengthen the church. These Christians are not cowering in fear over Rome and over Satan. They're getting bolder in Jesus as they hold on to him. You know, everything he's doing, it's not driving people away from Jesus. It's drawing people towards Jesus. Again, that's how great our God is. That, that's how, how wonderful this ministry of the Holy Spirit is. So let me just note a couple of other things here that I think are really important. And then again, next week, Acts 6 through 8, 3. Lord, would you, can, can we do that next week? Yes, okay, good, we can. Okay, so just a couple of other things to note. Throughout Scripture, we see something in, in relationship with spiritual warfare and spiritual movement. God in Scripture, I think we can all agree on this, God works through people. Okay, can we agree through that? Moses, David, I mean, the prophets, the kings, God works through people. So does Satan, okay? Especially the religious. Now, this is chilling in Scripture. Um, there is no coincidence in the Old Testament that it is the religious who kill off the prophets. Do you remember Jesus talks about this? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. You know, you build tombs for the prophets. Oh, they're whitewashed, they're beautiful, yet your fathers are the ones who put them in there, okay? The religious. In, in the Gospels, it is the religious who heckle and harass Jesus. And as Peter says here, his blood is, is really on their hands. They, they take that lead role in the crucifixion. Well, here in, in Acts, the same is true. It is the religious who continue to oppress and to persecute Christians throughout the rest of the New Testament. And there's a lesson here for us. You know what the lesson is? Don't be those guys. We do not want to be those guys. And that, that's why I love Morgan. You even prayed that today. We didn't even talk about that. But, you know, for us as believers, we want to always stay in a place of humility. Um, it is easy. Listen, I've been to seminary. I've seen it happen. You know, kids come into seminary, and we're going to learn. And now we get a little theological knowledge. And next thing, you know, we know everything there is about the Bible. And we don't want to get puffed up with knowledge ever. We don't want pride to ever take hold of us. That's a real danger when it, when it comes to, to the religious. So we don't want to do that. We also um, want to be careful not to enter into judgment. And this is just easy because we're human beings. It is so easy to be disappointed in people or to kind of peg somebody. And next thing you know, we're judge, we're jury, we've gotten them figured out, we're filled with offense. So this is why in church, you know, we, we spend time at the communion table getting free. You know, we pray for forgiveness. We, we watch ourselves. We try to serve one another in humility. We don't ever want to be those guys. Finally, there's one other side note about uh, spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, that uh, is kind of comical, and it's kind of not comical, okay? So here it is. Back in the 80s and 90s, at least in the southern part of the U.S., uh, my suspicion is it happened here too, in the evangelical church and especially the charismatic church, we called everything a spiritual attack. 
I mean, even as a kid, I was like, no, 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 wait, this is wrong. I mean, people would come, and I'm having a bad day. It's a spiritual attack. My kids are misbehaving. It's a spiritual attack. I, I've got a cold. It's a spiritual attack. We got way out of balance with calling anything difficult and anything inconvenient a spiritual attack. And by the way, the danger of that is it also lets you overlook your flesh, you know? Sometimes it ain't a spiritual attack. It's just us being disobedient or us walking into temptation. Well, here's the, here's the thing. Nowadays, when you look at the evangelical church, nothing is a spiritual attack. And that is naive because, listen, our God is spirit. Uh, Satan, his enemy, is a fallen spiritual being. There is a very real spiritual world. And we as the church, we really want to be awake to that. We want to be, be aware of that. And the problem with, well, nothing's spiritual, everything's physical, the, the danger that has in the church is it can cause us to get very lax, to, to be people who, you know, I mean, the Word of God speaks about spiritual things. Well, maybe the Word of God is, it's, it's not that important, really. We see that attitude today all over even the church. Realizing that we are called also to live a life of worship and prayer. When we disengage too much spiritually, we lose that burning need to pray, to enter into to a life of worship and, and, and to pray ceasingly. That can happen to us. It can also cause us to disengage from mission and ministry because the mission of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ, it is about spiritual life happening in people's lives. Well, you begin to lose touch with the spiritual. Eh, the mission, it's kind of a good suggestion, not a great commission. That's what can happen to us. And then finally, it can even cause people to walk away from the church. And we see that with Christians today. Well, I, I can live it on my own. No, you can't. You need a family. Orphans don't, don't do well in the world, spiritually or physically. We need the body of Christ. And so it's very important. And by the way, wouldn't that be the greatest spiritual attack of all by Satan? To lull all of God's people to sleep and to cause us to forget who we are and whose we are. Let's pray together. Oh, God, you're so good. And Father, I love that this week with this message, you just blew a trumpet call to me. As, a, as I studied and as I prayed. And, and Father, I just am so thankful that you reminded me, as, as I am a dual citizen of both England and the United States, that I am a dual citizen of, of heaven and of this earth. And so, so, God, we want to live engaged down here. Father, we, we want to be people who are aware of the world we live in. We understand the responsibility we have to love and to bless our society. But God, never to forget that, that there is a spiritual battle, that you have already won that battle, and that, God, you call us in, into a place of, of victory and leading others to life and to goodness. Father, we, we just welcome, we welcome the movement and the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this church. Father, we thank you that you are here to restore us so that we can go out there and be, be engaged in the ministry of restoration. You, you come to reconcile us with you and each other so we can enter into the ministry of reconciliation. Father God, I thank you that, that we as your church are not called to tread water and to exist down here. We are called to live and proclaim and burn brightly in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.